0: Well, let's turn again our Bibles to the Psalm 102. The Psalm 102, during the Word of God, we're really going to finish this section of studies on the immutability of God. We've been uh, looking at these matters regarding the doctrine of God, His existence, and attributes. Um, we're looking at these things that are really particularly true of God alone. These essential incommunicable attributes, this one, of course, God's immutability and the contrast between God and his creation is made clear in the closing verses of this psalm 102 and verse 25 of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands they shall perish but thou shalt endure Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment as a vesture shalt thou change them and they shall be changed but thou art the same and thy years shall have no end The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And of course, we've considered this subject initially in our studies, recognizing that the doctrine of God's immutability is really a necessary doctrine when it comes to the doctrine of God. Necessary from the very concept of a divine being. We see the doctrine confirmed in the name that he gives to himself in the burning bush. He is Jehovah, the I am. And again, the sense there is of the continual present tense. No past, no future in that sense, but God continually as the great unchangeable I am. And then there are texts, of course, uh, like Malachi 3, I the Lord changed not. And here, Psalm 102, there are these texts again that confirm very clearly uh, the fact that God does not change. Now the statement of that is, is simple. He is a God that does not change. It's immutable it is to be subject to change, but God is not subject to change. And that is necessarily the case. Again, we think of the self-existent nature of God. He's self-originating in that sense. He has he's underived, uncaused. And therefore, there's no change even in his beginning. There's no start to God. He is simply the great. I am. And, and therefore, that implies immediately the idea of God being immutable. The same is true regarding God's perfection. If he's to change, he must change for the better. If he changes at all, it must be the worst. He is the perfect ideal God. It's also true regarding God's simplicity. And again, God is not parts. He's not made of parts. And therefore, there can be no removal of something from God. Uh, that's not possible without uh, indeed taking God apart altogether. And so he would cease to be God if there is any change. And again, we as, as men and women, we are made of parts. We're complex in that sense, body and soul. And there can be change in that sense. We can lose a limb. In fact, even in death, we can have separation of body and soul. There's change, those things that God cannot undergo it's also true regarding God's infinity. He is infinite. And again, if you add to something that is infinite, what's well, not possible. If you take it away, again, it becomes less than infinite. So these are the concepts, really, that go- regard and undergird uh, the immutability of God. We, we think of his eternity here. That's mentioned in verse 27. Thou art the same, and thy years shall have no and, and the last thing, just regarding the doctrine of God, is a sovereignty. I'm just rehearsing these things. We've been through this already God's sovereignty. We have, and we live in a stable, orderly creation that implies and requires a divine stability, a divine, unchanging stability. And it's just one of those theological inferences uh, that lead to the doctrine of God's immutability. But we have, in, in last recent times, considered some of the difficulties. I rethought that today. Perhaps difficulties is not not the right word, but certainly areas of confusion. Uh, There are some ways in which the doctrine of God's immutability has been questioned or challenged, or perhaps at times the doctrine of God's immutability has been used to then cause difficulties in other doctrines. So it can go either way. And so there are some, and they have a, an idea of progressive theism that, well, because they see change in the world, therefore God must be changing. Now, well, that's patently false. But there are others, and they hold fast to the doctrine of God's immutability, and they then struggle with other areas like God repenting or propitiation. And so they hold on to immutability, but they struggle in other areas. And so these difficulties are areas of confusion, that they go both directions either to the denial of God's immutability or perhaps to hold on to that, but then lead to misunderstandings in other areas. And again, I'm not going back over these in any detail. We thought about creation, and again, the concept of creation. Well, God is the eternal, unchanging creator, and act. the act does not make God become creator. He is creator, and as creator, he acts in creation. But immutability does not mean that God is inactive. When we think of all the works of God in creation, there are things He does for the first time. But there are things that are true of God intrinsically and in essence and immutably so. He is the Redeemer. But He did not redeem until the fall. And the fall comes and then God begins the process and the work of redemption. But eternally, He is the eternal Redeemer. Unchangeably so his will. His plan of redemption is unchangeable, and so the idea of creation or redemption don't suggest or undermine the doctrine of God's immutability. Another area we saw last time, in, or in this nature, was the doctrine of God of Christ's incarnation. Again, there are various ideas. If if God the Son takes on a human nature, is there therefore change in the deity? And of course, no. God's divine nature does not change in the incarnation. In the Bible, we, we saw this, the Bible affirms two natures in one person. The divine nature does not change. And so the incarnation is not a change in deity in some subtractive way that Christ empties himself of deity, but it's a change by addition. Christ is God and man. And that's the concept there. He takes the form of a servant. And so the language of change in the Bible often has to do with Christ's willing condescension to come to, to leave glory and to enter this world and take on the likeness of sinful man. So that's also, again, not an issue when it comes to God's immutability. The incarnation does not change the essence of God. And then today, moving forward, I want to begin by thinking about this subject known as God's impassibility. I can apologize for the, the words. These are words that are, again, theological terms, but, but they are helpful. They're helpful in many ways because they, they put into one word what the issue is. The doctrine of God's impassibility is the statement that God does not have passions. And that statement is found in our own confession of faith. It's there in chapter 2 in the paragraph 1, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, most pure spirit, invisible without body parts, and here's the phrase, or passions. Now this has caused significant confusion. And in, in recent years, in some reformed circles, has caused significant division and debate, dispute. And there are those again who have If you like, rediscover the doctrine of God's simplicity. Remember, God is not parts or passions. And they want to reaffirm classical theism, and and rightly so. They want to declare very clearly: all that is God is in God. There are no parts to God. And so they reaffirm divine theism. But then they then question some of their aspects of the doctrine of God. What does it mean that God is angry? What does it mean that God has pity or compassion? Passions, to some, are synonymous with emotions. And emotions are changeable. And therefore they say, well, God therefore cannot have these emotions or feelings. Again, we've got to be so very, very careful. And I don't pretend even for one minute to answer all the questions here. This is not the scope. This This is a church Bible class. And again, I've, I've read many, many pages in this subject the last number of years, trying to understand it more clearly, and I get so far, and then I go back, and I get so far, and I get back. It's a big issue, and there are significant difficulties. So what I want to try to do is I want to try to make things as simple as possible today, and things that we can certainly affirm and agree today. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, the attempts to explain this, well, what does the confession mean that God is without passions? Again, they're trying to distinguish this idea of changeable emotions. But again, in the Reformed community, there was a distinguishing of passions with the term was used affections. Again, the derivation of those two terms are different. Passions come from suffering. And so the idea that if you have passion, you've suffered harm in some ways, a a response uh, to, to that particular harm or suffering affections. Then put it this way, there are those who affirm that God has pure spiritual feelings or affections. Emotions are carnal, and God's not carnal. Emotions often involve our physical makeup. You, you think of things like, like anger. You, know, you, you feel that in your blood pressure rising. You, you, there's a physical component to human passions. God does not have passions like that. You think of uh, so many emotions you have, you know, joy, you, you may get a, I get a flushing, you, you, there are things that happen physically and in connection with some of the human emotions that we encounter. God is not like that. God does not have emotions uh, like men, not passions like men. It's also affirmed by some that when it speaks of God's emotions in the Bible, anger, love, compassion, grief, well, this is simply anthropomorphic language. I need to explain that. Again, anthropomorphisms are attributing to God things that are true of men. Anthro is from the word for man. In the Greek, morphe for form, you put together the form of man. It's giving to God features the form of man attributed to God. Hands, eyes, a mouth. We understand God does not have these parts, and so they say, well, the emotions and the feelings in the Bible regarding God are anthropopathisms, human emotions being given to God. And so they say the language is picture language, metaphorical language. That's how they try to understand the words of the Scripture. So let me, let me say a couple of things. Undoubtedly, God's emotions are not like man's. That we can affirm without doubt. God is not like us. We are made in His image. Uh, That's true. But the image of God in man involves this complex of body and soul. And so God is the creator. We are the creature. And there's always a distinction between God and man. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we can say His emotions are, are not our emotions. They're not akin to ours. But it's also worth noting that the language used in the Bible must convey truth. To say, well, we can explain the descriptions in the Bible of God's emotions using the language of anthropomorphism doesn't do justice to the fact that picture language in the Bible actually means something. And so I understand the desire. We'll say, well, this is just God condescending and using language you can understand. But what he's trying to communicate something to us there's a point and an intent in the language God used that we're meant to draw conclusions from that language, aren't we? So it doesn't really answer the question by saying, well, this is simply anthropomorphic language. You see, turn back to Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to show you just a few examples again of language. I think we'll probably come back and spend a, a, a longer time uh, looking at some of the if you like the emotional descriptions of God in the Scriptures, I think it warrants a study on its own, uh, maybe over a couple of weeks. But in Genesis chapter 6, you've got the language of verse 5 there. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And here's the language. And it grieved him. At his heart. So let's take this as being anthropomorphic, or anthropopathic. This idea that we're seeing God's emotions in language of man. So, what's the point? You tell me. What do you think the point of this is? What's the lesson? You're you're a reader. You're reading Genesis. What are you meant to understand from this? Dan. Okay, but what what are you to learn about God from this? So again, we've got the the, the two things in our catechism: what the Bible teach, what uh, who is God, and what man is to concerning God, and what duty God requires man. Yeah, George, what's the idea? Yeah, no, that's, that's the question. So, again, people, people watching and listening in, George is making the point. Well, we understand God is not moved, but He's not unmoved. And you've you've explained, brother, in a, in a minute there the very conflict we find ourselves in our mind here. You know, for God to be grieved, yeah, I'll get you For God to be grieved, is all this? So He wasn't grieved before this. Is this is this new? And therefore, does it change? And, and that's the difficulty. So, Lars. Yeah, and I'm going to come to that because the, the issue, so I was making the point, God endures long-suffering. So what's the termination of long-suffering? Anger. So God is slow to anger. Again, even the language of slowness implies what? That there's a development of anger in God. And this gets very difficult to so say, well, therefore, is God is God mutable? Is He changeable? And so we we affirm, I'll come to you Paul now in a second, but we we affirm again clearly that God's existence does not depend upon his creation. And so God is not, he's not subject to creation. He doesn't suffer at the hands of creation. So if we do something, we do harm to God. In that sense, he doesn't have passions. Again, that's how they affirm these things theologically. That if, if the idea that creation can act in such a way as to harm God, well, that's part of how many understood the idea of passions here. God cannot be harmed. God suffers no harm at the hand of His creatures, even sinful creatures. They don't harm God. And Paul, welcome. Okay. Yeah. And so. Yeah. So that's the case. So God is unchangeably sin-hating. And so when you see the language of Scripture, they're describing the unchangeable God's response to change in creation. And so if the creation is wicked and unchanging, God will always respond in this fashion. And so I think what George is said, the idea of being moved and unmoved is, is language that probably most would not be comfortable with in, 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 uh, in these sort of circles. But Burkhoff, the theologian, said one of the dangers about immutability is we get to the point that we have a perception of God being frozen in time, and the Bible's not revealed that of God, that God is is just kind of a, a fixed entity, and there's nothing in the heart of God. The Bible clearly reveals the heart of God. Yeah, George... The issue, George, is not, it's not that God is not moved by passion. They're saying, and rightly affirming, God does not have those passions in a human level. So they are distinct from those passions. So again, there are some who have, who have said that the language of the Bible regarding God's feelings, they belong in God's mind, understanding, and they remove from God any kind of concept of heart, and all this language is, is, is anthropomorphic, but I don't think that there's justice. The, the language must explain something in God. And so God is a, is a God. And I put a very simple question to you. Does God care for you? Does God care for you today? Because that, that comes out of that question, ultimately. If we, if we deny the actual concept of affection in God, we, we get to the point that we deny and what we're going to see... Psalm 103, you know, and so we've got to be very, very careful in these things. Yet, Yeah, and that's an important so thing. So, Dan again said, for those watching on, that there are those um, language in the Bible that is hard for us to understand. So, God's unchangeable, and yet the Bible says he's grieved and his heart, and, and yet rightly understands that when God becomes man in the person of Christ Jesus, there's one who's touched with the feeling of our infirmities and the compassion of Christ. But I would argue that. Christ being touched with the feeling of our infirmities is not only because of his humanity. And that, that's one of the difficulties you get. So the, the Son of God in perfect humanity reveals the Father perfectly. And so again, there are human emotions in the Savior that are only present because he's man. But he also reveals the heart of God perfectly, and so his human emotions are without sin. They are perfectly in accordance with the character of God. And so the human emotions of Christ cannot be in contradiction to the heart of God. There's no contradiction between the two persons of the, of the, of the two natures of one person of the Son of God. And so yeah, these, are, these are massive things, but I, I, I just don't want this, uh, this idea of God's immutability filtering through kind of reformed circles. And you read these things perhaps in various uh, blogs and articles, and you get to the point that you've a God that does not feel Again, let me read Shedd, W.G.T. Shedd, very old and august reformed theologian, and not, not given to you know, emotionalisms in many ways, says this It is important to remember this signification of the term passion and the intention in employing it. Sometimes it has been understood to be synonymous with feeling or emotion. And here's the point and the erroneous and demoralizing inference has been drawn that the divine nature is destitute of feeling altogether. And that's what he's going to echo that concern that we, that we get to the point that we remove any feeling from the heart of God. And so turn, turn to the Psalm uh, number 7. I'm going to show you this in, in the Psalm 7. And the verse number 11. God judges the righteous and God is... Here's the text, angry with the wicked every day. Doesn't just say that God's against the wicked every day, that God's face is set against them, but God is angry with the wicked every day. Yet yet over in Psalm 103, over in Psalm 103 in the verse number 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plant this in mercy. Again, we're seeing here a description of God's long-suffering. Again, we saw that we Genesis chapter 6 in terms of the wickedness of the earth that God sees this, but he's patient, patient. he's got patience, he's slow to anger in that sense, long-suffering. That's still true of God. It doesn't imply, doesn't imply, remotely imply that there's change in God. God's unchangeably long-suffering. God's always been long-suffering, but the long-suffering of God has a termination in the outpouring of His wrath and anger in the days of Noah and in the coming of Christ. So, He's unchangeably long-suffering. He will not be short-tempered ever in that sense. Yeah, George... So there are, no, the, 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 there are various, the reason I'm pausing is because there are various ways in which the confession of faith has been understood by good reformed men. So you, you go back, I'll just show you that there are some who say, where it says there, God's infinite in being, perfection, pure spirit, invisible. And hey Hodge makes the point without, and, and he, he translates the word body with the idea of bodily, without bodily parts or passions. Emphasizing again that God is spiritual, and so the point of the confession of faith here is emphasizing God's spirit nature. He's incorporeal. He's, he's no body, and he attaches passions to the concept of God's body, and therefore emphasizing the humanity of God's passions, and that may well be part of the, the sense of this. It's not so much three things without body parts or passions. But bodily part of passion, although others who would say absolutely not, because the parts, although that includes God's attributes, and they're not cut into parts. And so it's a huge debate in this, in this issue. But the passions clearly are not human passions, they are, they are not given to, to changes in the existence of God. And that's the idea, yep. Yeah. You no, I think theologically we're the between passions and affections. So there are clearly in man, there are impure passions and there are, there are changing passions in man. And so we may respond to some situation tomorrow differently than we do today. Um, we may be short-tempered tomorrow and not today. And so the, the passions of men are, are, are constantly changing. And I think that's certainly part of it. But I don't believe, I don't believe the confession... Uh, I don't believe our Reformed forefathers were suggesting there was no feeling in God, no affection in God. Uh, I think that, that's, that's clearly the case. Yeah, Kent? I just wanted to know, what do you think that means there? What was in for the
1: Westminster
0: Bible? You know, <coughs> trying to get at they said God would that. Know. Yeah, so Ken's asking us, what, what do I think? Kent, I don't know. I'll be quite quite honest, so uh, I read various views, and there are those who understood these things better than I do, and they, they come out in different sides. And so what I'm, my desire is, is to get to this point, if I can find my slide again. Uh, lost myself. This is what I, think I can stand over. So whenever it comes to the distinction of terms, I understand, yeah, God's passions and emotions are not like man's, that he's not changeable like we are in terms of our emotions and passions, but I would also affirm the language must convey truth. And so God is grieved by sin. He's angry with wickedness. He loves the sinner. And he is, well, you turn to Psalm 103 in, in the verse number 13. We're there. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. There's, there's compassion in the heart of God. It's, it's not God simply displaying good to us. And so George rightly, he affirms the covenant Covenant of works, covenant of grace, and and God acts in creation under the... He he self-governed himself according to the covenant, and unchangeably so. And so he, he responds to creation given his own character, and that's an unchangeable character. But he doesn't simply do good for us or be good to us. He is good for us. In his very heart, he's for us in his compassion. You know, God God does care for us. And the fact that Christ comes in incarnate form and reveals that so clearly, God does genuinely, from his heart, love his people. That that is not mushy language of uh, kind of an, an, an orthodox theology. I think that's biblical theology to reflect the love that God has for us from his his heart. I think there's one more reference, Psalm 86. I've given up finishing this section today, but that's okay. In Psalm 86 and the verse 15. Because part of this revelation of God is how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Here described by, the, by David in the Psalm 86, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. All right, so what, what we see in God, and again, some theologically have kind of made the point, well, you've got God's anger and you've got God's love, and out of that comes all the rest. And that may be a helpful to understand these things. Yeah, Mr. Shannon? Yeah, no, and I think the, my, my desire, amen, is compassion every morning. But again, there, there are some, and they, well, they suggest we, we see God's goodness, we see the acts of God as being good, and we appreciate the fact that we receive those mercies, those compassions that are new every morning. I think the Bible goes further than that. God delights to show us compassion. God delights to do us good. There is within the heart of God a joy and an internal blessedness. God is the internally blessed God, happy God in all that he does. And I, I affirm that without any fear. And so, Ken asked the question, what was my passions?" I, I'm not entirely sure. But the Bible, if it is even anthropomorphic language, is still describing something that's true regarding the heart of our God toward us. It is his pleasure and delight to do us good. You get So, the, I divide this particular love for his
2: people versus. Sure, know, sure. We I mean,
0: don't know who they are. We've got to give the God. that he knows who's yeah? Yeah, no, I, I understand that. And I think I'm trying to distinguish in your minds between the acts of God and the heart of God. So, there's the, a the, the distinction there, okay? So, God does things which we see, well, there is, there's a display of God's grace but with, with, within the heart of God is a delight to display that grace and, and a compassion, a pity for his people, a genuine heart uh, toward us of, of good. Um, but that's not suggesting, that's unchangeably the case. That's part of God's unchangeable nature. He is a God full of compassion, uh, unchangeably so. He doesn't become a God full of compassion, but he's a God who is full of compassion. He is a God of, uh, again, of, of wrath, unchangeably so. Yeah. George? Yeah. Yeah, no, amen. No, it's, it's good, and please, the, this class is meant to be a conversation. That's the way it's been run for the last almost seven years since I've been here, and I appreciate the conversations we have in the class. We certainly grow, so don't, don't ever come think you can't speak. You're always welcome to speak, brother. <laughs> you know, all of you are welcome to, to make comments and questions. how we learn together. And uh, my, my burden today is that you would, you would not misunderstand God's immutability to such a degree. That you have this perception that, that God is not emotional toward you. And I use that very carefully. But God does not emote toward you. God does love and care for the people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. And that is the heart of God towards people. With care, and with consideration, and without that in any way changing God. We don't add to God, we don't make God happier. God is internally, perfectly, eternally happy. And we praise his name again today. Well, let's We'll close in prayer at that time where time's gone for today. And so we'll come back and look at some of those other difficulties uh, in a couple of weeks' time in the, Lord's, in the Lord's will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to thee again in Christ's name. We pray for your grace and for your help and for your mercy to be toward us. Help us to understand the word today. Bless it to our hearts. May we grow in understanding the things of God. Thank you, dear Father, that there are things that are Again, so hard for us to grasp and understand, and yet your word reveals these things for us. Help us to take you at your word, your own self-revelation. Help us understand that we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.